Uh, read this morning from the book of Esther. We're starting a new series in this strange corner of the Bible. If you're new this week or not been around the last couple of weeks, uh, we're going to pick the story up with Sorry, there we go. Uh, with the scene set thing in the, in the Persian Empire. So we're in Persia, kind of modern-day Iran, I suppose, uh, in a city called Susa. We've got an emperor who's conquered most of the world from India through sort of southern Europe to northern Africa. Uh, he's called um, Ahashwarosh. I can't say it very well. Uh, and he has rejected his first queen and brought a new queen into place called Esther, who is Jewish. And we're going to pick the story up in chapter 2 and verse 19. And I'll read from there through to the end of chapter 3. So let's hear God's word. Esther 2 verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred to her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's day, gate, Bigtan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these days, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamandatha, and advanced him and set him above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Harman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them that he was a Jew. And when Harman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Harman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they'd made known to him the people of Mordecai, Harman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different to those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who've charge of the king's business, uh, that they may put it in the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and on the 13th day of the month and on an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the Decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, here we are, and the sage stage has been set, and finally the action of the book of Esther begins, and it begins with real darkness. Uh, we see. Uh, the baddie come on scene. Children, if you've been to a pantomime, there's always a baddie, isn't there, who comes on stage at some point, And you know the whole plot is going to revolve around him. And here is our baddie. Here is Harmon. Um, just before we meet him, though, we meet uh, Mordecai in a little bit more detail. Uh, what I'm going to do this week, in previous weeks, I've tried to go through the whole passage and kind of explain what's happened and then draw some lessons. I'm going to do it more in two sections today. So first of all, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 19 through to 3 verse 6 and think about the the enemy within okay the enemy within Uh, there are really two scenes the first scene here is verses 19 uh, through the end of chapter 2 this is the scene where a plot is discovered Uh, Mordecai is an official we read so this is Mordecai who's the cousin of Esther he's a Jew in exile And he's working in the gate of the palace. That doesn't mean he's sort of sweeping it up or guarding it like a soldier. The gate is like the the offices, as it were, the kind of center of business for the king. Mordecai is some sort of official working for the empire. And it just so happens that one day he's busy working away and he hears, perhaps through the window or behind a curtain, he hears two eunuchs plotting to kill the king. Now, apparently this is quite a common thing. In fact, we know from other histories, from kind of secular histories, particularly a guy called Herodotus, that, that the king Ahasuerus was killed in a plot. He was assassinated in his bedroom. Uh, uh, not in this plot, obviously, because this one was foiled, but later on. And Mordecai is a good, loyal citizen of the empire. And so he reports the plot to Esther, his cousin, who's the queen. She reports it to Mordecai, sorry, to, to, to the king, to Ahasuerus. And he writes it in his book. Again, we know this book existed, that that there was a record kept of all who did good deeds to the king. And Persian emperors prided themselves on always rewarding uh, those who served them. And hence the surprise when we move from the first scene to the second scene, that the next verse is, don't read after these things King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai, but rather Haman. So here's our second scene. Uh, A plot discovered is the first scene, but here is a rivalry resumed. Uh, Haman, the Agagite, is second in charge. See, he's promoted to everyone, above everyone apart from the king. He is second in charge. 
And the deal is that everyone has to bow to him when he goes past. And everyone does, except Mordecai. And in verse 2 there, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, initially, it seems that, that Haman doesn't really notice. Maybe Mordecai's not super senior. Uh, and so the other officials talk to, to, to Mordecai. What, what are you doing? Why are you not bowing? And people have wrestled with this ever since, right from the earliest Jewish commentators through to the modern day. Uh, is Mordecai just being arrogant? I'm not bowing to anyone. Well, that doesn't really seem to fit with his character throughout the rest of the book, where he uh, is a man full of honour, always doing the right thing. Uh, other people say, well, he, of course he won't bow to a human being because we should only bow before God. Maybe Mordecai is just being a good Jew, not giving worship and honour to someone who doesn't deserve it. But again, I don't think that could be the right answer because he's, he, he, this bow is just a sign of respect. If King Charles comes into the room to visit one Sunday morning, you'd bow, wouldn't you? Or children, if you're, if you're a girl, you'd curtsy. doesn't mean you think he's God. Later on in the book, Esther will bow to the king doesn't mean she's worshipping him. So I don't think that's the answer either. Uh, there are some clues in the passage, I think, as to why uh, Mordecai won't bow to Haman. Uh, the first is there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look how he's introduced. He is Haman the Agagite. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, when you read Old Testament stories, when people are introduced as something you know someone the something the something really matters okay it, it's not just a kind of a, a name or a title it tells you something really significant for the story <clears throat> we have that if we read stories of richard the lionheart don't we children you know, richard the lionheart you know from his name the lionheart that he's going to be a brave king okay good at battle and fighting and that kind of thing who is haman the agagite Agag, get that Agat bit of it, was a king of the Amalekites in the day of Saul. And the Amalekites are, are a people throughout the story of the Old Testament who have consistently persecuted God's people. In fact, they were the first to do so. Children, do you remember when God's people came out of Egypt? They were saved out of Egypt. And they, they crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh chased them, but his armies got swamped by the waters. And finally they got out and they went to the promised land. They went on that journey to the promised land. Now, understandably, there were fit young people on that journey, but also old men and old women who were a bit towards the back of the queue. There were nursing mothers carrying babies in their, in their wombs. There were newborn babies. There were the ill and the crippled and the weak. And what we read in, in Exodus 17 is that the Amalekites attacked them and picked off all the stragglers. They were the first nation to attack God's people. And so God says, and God promises right back in Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy, that Amal the Amalekite nation is going to be wiped out. Their name is going to be obliterated. Children, I wonder if you noticed something strange happening during the reading. Okay, every time we had Haman's name, or nearly every time, you know, you can't, <laughs> nearly every time, there was a noise, wasn't there? A noise from the back of the room. Now, this book, Esther, is read every year, um, usually about March time, at a festival, a Jewish festival called Purim. We'll find out about Purim in a few chapters' time. And every time the book is read, when Haman's name comes up, 
all the children are giving rat- given rattles on things that make noise. And their job is to make a noise so you can't hear Heyman's name. Now, I didn't want to risk giving it to children this morning. Okay, so I, I gave it to Tom. Mixed, mixed effects. But um, <laughs> he was doing the same thing. Every time the baddie's name came up, his name was kind of sounded out. And the reason the Jews do that uh, is because of that promise of God, Amalek and Agag, their, their name will be blotted out. Now, God wasn't talking about a reading, of course. He's talking about something much more serious. But what we're getting pointed to is that this man is, is, stands in a whole tradition, a whole tradition of persecuting God's people. So it happened in the Exodus, as I've already mentioned. Years later, and this is really significant, years later it happened again with Saul. Saul fought a battle against Agag, King Agag. And he was told to, to destroy Agag and all his people. But he didn't. That's one of the reasons he lost the throne. And what's particularly um, significant about that is that when we were introduced to Mordecai back in chapter 2, he's introduced as a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, Kish was Saul's father. So Mordecai is of the same tribe. He's a descendant of the same family as Saul. And so this conflict is going on down the generations. Mordecai knows he cannot bow to those that God has commanded a curse upon. He's not just being arrogant. It's not just a sort of petty rivalry between families who don't get on. He is living in line with God's promise that this man should not be honoured. His family have failed in that way in the past. But he is standing true to God's word. And that's why I think when the councillors come together in verse 4, they speak to him day after day, but he won't change his mind. They tell Haman. Now, why do they tell Haman? See how it's phrased. In order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Will Mordecai's words stand? It's not just we're going to tell on him because we're a Jew and we hate the Jews. It doesn't seem that they have any particular animosity to the Jews. Rather, they want to see if Mordecai's explanation, which consists of him being a Jew, will be reasonable, will be accepted. It seems at least possible, plausible to them, these courtiers, that that is a reasonable reason not to bow. Or to put it another way, whose word will stand? God's word that Agag and the Amalekites will not be honoured? Or Haman's command that all bow before him? Well, Haman acts in line with his ancestors. It might be worth saying, by the way, if this um, disturbs you, you hear about God saying a a particular people ought to be wiped out. Um, That that isn't saying that no Amalekite could ever repent and join the people of God. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that at certain times, some members of tribes where on the whole the tribe was desperately trying to kill the Israelites, members of the tribe would vote out, as it were, would repent and join God's people. They'd be forgiven and welcomed in. Think of Ruth, who was a Moabitess. But Harmon, unfortunately, is keen to keep pursuing uh, the blood feud and to kill off the Jewish people. And so in verse 5, he is furious, total fury. Uh, He is filled with anger. Now, this pattern of this story might might remind you uh, of something. You might notice that we've kind of seen it before. Uh, What do we see in chapter 1? We saw... An important ruler, the king, give a ridiculous order. Vashti, his wife, must come before him. 
And when she refused, he responded in anger with a ridiculous rule. You're banished and a rule is going to go to all nations that all wives must submit to their husbands. Well, here in chapter three, you've got the same thing. You've got another ruler, Haman, another ridiculous decree. Everyone must bow before me. You've got someone standing up against it, Mordecai this time. You've got a massive overreaction. He's filled with fury, just like his king was. And we have the decree that goes out. All Jews will be killed across the whole empire. There's patterns going on here. He wants to annihilate all Jews. And this is where we're going to slow down a little bit. Um, Haman, interestingly, in all the book of Esther, if you read it all through, Haman is the character we get most insight into. I've heard actors say that it's it's always the most fun to play the villain. Um, They're the most interesting kind of character in the play. And although this is a a true story, he is the character that we get most light uh, shed on. In fact, one commentator says this, the author deliberately chooses to examine and throw a harsh light on the squalid soul of the, this anti-Semite. Anti-Semite John just means someone who hates the Jews. This is Haman. As you read through the book, you'll often get little phrases like um, Haman thought to himself or, or Haman said, or he gives himself away. There's much more detail on him than there is on the heroes, on Esther and Mordecai. And that must be deliberate. Stories are subtle, but they're deliberate. And so we're going to slow down this week and think a little bit about the evil that God's people were facing. This is not the story of the hero, but the villain. At a simple level, uh, Haman is an idolater, isn't he? Um, he wanted honour and respect, and if it's not given to him, fury, anger. It is a totally disproportionate response. And let's think first about about the enemy within, the enemy within. Before we just sort of boo and hiss at Haman, we've got to recognise that there's always something of the world still in us as Christians. We're not pure people, sinless people. And therefore, when we see the baddies, as it were, we're meant to not just boo and hiss, but also realise in some ways we're seeing a mirror to the dark parts of our soul. At a simple level, I've just at a simple level, uh, as I've just said, respect and honour has become Haman's driving force, his idol. And when he doesn't get it, it's fury. Anger is the giveaway. Disproportionate anger. I wonder how different we are. When was the last time you got angry? Can you think of it, children? Can you think of the last time you got angry? Uh, Maybe it was really kind of obvious anger, like clenching your fist and stamping your foot and going pink in the face like they do in cartoons. But for many of us, we don't get angry like that. We've learned to control ourselves. And so it's more of an internal thing, a bitterness, a resentment. It's a bottled anger, like a Coke bottle shaken up. Won't dare take the lid off and explode because we don't want people to think badly of us. But the anger is just there burning inside us. When you were last angry, why was it? Likely because some idol in your heart was being challenged. For Harmon, I haven't got the respect I deserve. And then a massive overreaction. Children, perhaps you were watching TV and mum said, can you go and tidy your bedroom? And you got really angry about it. Why is that? Is it because you really enjoy being angry? Well, probably not. 
Not many of us actually enjoy being angry. But because at that moment, TV was a thing that was going to make you happy. TV was the most important thing. Far more important than obeying mum or dad or far more important than obeying God. TV is what mattered. That means that TV had become a little idol, like a little god. Now, I know you weren't bowing down to it or worshipping it. But it had become the most important thing. It's like a baby. You you give something to a baby. They grab your phone or something. And you take the phone off them. And they are furious. They can't use it. They don't know what it is. But for those 10 seconds, that is the most important thing in the world to them. Haman has never grown up. For him, it's not TV. It's honor and respect. But if he doesn't get it, everything is wrong and fury erupts. And if we're honest, a lot of us haven't grown up, have we? housemate hasn't done the washing up again and we burn as we do it we do the washing up for them but in a really passively aggressive way make sure we drop it in later oh don't worry i've done that for you smile gritted teeth anger well why are we so angry why we're not rejoicing at the chance to serve we've had perhaps some of our free time taken away our comfort taken away or we have this strange sense of justice where we deserve better than this how dare they treat me like this Often anger is a giveaway to the idols, things that really control our hearts. But with Haman, I think you can dig a little bit deeper. Again, in the words of one Jewish commentator, actually, who I think is so insightful. He says Haman is an example of someone with a vast and tender ego. Your ego is your kind of image of yourself. And as Christians, we're meant to to be confident in our identity. We're made by God. And he's loved us and died for us and saved us. We're children of God. And so our identity is safe and it's stable. It lies not in us, stuff I've done, but it's given to us from above. God says, I've made you and I love you. And those things can't be changed because they're gifts of God. They're his word. But so often we we, we find our identity in something else, our ego. And it becomes like a, a bubble. You know, when you blow a giant bubble, children, and so easily can be pricked and popped. See, for Haman, it's not enough that he's second in charge to the king. It's not enough that he's got enough Welsh, wealth, Welsh? <laughs> one, one area he didn't conquer was Wales. Um, enough wealth to give the king 10,000 talents. It's not enough that 99.9% of people bow to him. It needs to be everybody because his ego is so fragile. That same commentator says this. Haman's domination must be absolute and universally recognized. Otherwise, he cannot believe it himself. I think that's really insightful. Haman is so fragile as a character that he can't believe that he is secure. He can't believe he is powerful. Unless everyone else acknowledges it first. In that way, he's like his king, Ahasuerosh. In chapter one, we said that the king was always reading his image in other people's eyes. Well, his chief servant is just the same. You see it in the world today, don't you? Whilst making absolutely no judgment or call on who's right and wrong in the issue, one of the biggest news stories of the last six months has been the, uh, just frankly, the meltdown in the royal family, hasn't it? And time and again, when you, when you see Prince Harry interviewed, his concern is not whether he was right or not in what he did, but whether everyone else acknowledges he was right in what he did. 
He seems to need to be seen to be someone who did right. Again, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. That's not for me to decide. But like so many of us, it seems, at least in how he comes across in the media, that he's not happy in his own conscience. He's not happy with his own opinions of how he lived. He needs everybody else to acknowledge it, to see him as the good guy. Otherwise, he can't believe it himself. We're always building our identities on what other people think of us. You see it with, with little children at the table. They, they say something um, they think is funny and their eyes dart around the room. Is everyone laughing? Is everyone looking at me? And again, we just don't grow up. We post something on social media and the 50 people thumbs up or liking it doesn't matter. The three people who put negative comments, that's what really matters. You hear from celebrities, all the wealth and fame in the world, but a couple of mean tweets destroy them. We want to be something. We build our identity in something other than being a child of God who's made and saved by him. And we, we think of our identity as I'm, I'm the clever one or I'm the beautiful one or I'm the funny one or the friendly one, the wise one, the godly one. And the way we judge it is not in the Lord's eyes, but in other people's eyes. We have these vast and tender egos always needing more praise or honor or affirmation. And of course, it opens the doors to evil. When it seems threatened, well, we lash out with a sharp word. We put others down so we look better by comparison. We, we lie to get ahead. Okay, we've got to get up the career ladder because we've told ourselves that we are someone who succeeds. And so if needs be, I'll just massage the CV in order that I get ahead. We think our security is found in wealth. And so when the tax return comes in, we just fiddle it a little bit because I need to get ahead. There's plenty of Haman in us. The enemy within. And how different, of course, is Jesus? Never swayed by what people think. Happy in his identity as the son of the father. Comfortable. Living for his father in heaven. Not insisting his honour be recognised, although he had every right to. Not insisting that everyone bow down and worship, although he had every right to. Full of grace and peace and mercy. No fragile ego for him. The enemy within. And then the enemy around. We'll need to be more quick with this. Back to the story. This is verses 7 through to the end of the chapter. Um, Haman is furious, but it's not enough just to kill Haman. He's going to kill all, sorry, Mordecai. He's going to kill all Mordecai's people. And he, he, he casts a lot. They're called a pure in, in Hebrew or pur. And that's why later on we'll see that the festival that celebrates these events is, is called Purim. If you want to make something plural in Hebrew, you put im on the end. So we put an S, don't we, children? Cow, cows. I was going to do sheep, sheeps. That's not right, is it? Pig, pigs. Um, they put an im on the end. Seraf, seraphim. Cherub, cherubim. So pure, pure im. These dice are thrown. We found them. Uh, not those specific ones, but people have dug up Persian dice. It's a way of sort of divining what the fates tell you to do or a Hara Mazda, their God, tells them to do. And Haman casts the dice and it tells him, well, the day to slaughter all the Jewish people is not today, but it falls in the 12th month. In other words, there's going to be nearly a year until it happens. And so he goes to persuade the king that these people need slaughtering. And he kind of uses half-truths. 
Uh, they're all there in verse 8. Haman said to the king, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed. Well, that's true. The Jewish people are scattered around the empire, but not in a sinister way. He makes it sound like they're kind of infiltrating your empire. Rather, they've just been conquered by the empire and sort of scattered everywhere. A certain people, he doesn't name them. It's much easier for the king to um, slap a decree of execution on the people who are kind of unknown and blind. Evil often is blind to those it persecutes. Oh, they have different laws, Haman says. Well, that's sort of true. The Jews, you know, they don't eat pork. That's hardly a threat to King Ahasuerus. It's all insinuation. And the killer line is there at the end of verse 8. This is really um, psychotic. See how verse 8 finishes. It is not to the king's profit to tolerate them, literally to give them rest. Now, he's not saying there, they're a threat to you. He's saying it's not to your profit to let them live. They're just not worth letting live. They're not benefiting you. You're not gaining anything from them. There's no point giving them rest. Rest is going to be a big theme in this book. Remember, God promises people rest. Haman comes and says, no point giving them rest. They're just, you might as well, like ants in the bed, you might as well stamp them out. They don't bring anything. Can you see the depth of the evil? Not that they are attacking you, king, but they don't benefit you so why not wipe them out in fact it will be your profit to wipe them out king because i'm going to give you this huge sum of money the bribe in verse nine and people have calculated it's well over half the annual revenue of the of the empire and so haman becomes this has this new title in verse 10 he is the enemy of the jews but tragically ahashrot is so lazy He doesn't bother asking who the people are. He just gives his ring over to Haman. Power is put in the hands of the anti-Jew, the king of those who wants to kill God's people. And the king blindly says, go for it. And so this letter, this decree of death goes out. This is verses 12 through 15. In every tribe, to every tribe, tongue and nation, this huge empire... And just look at verse 13. Look at the instructions. The instructions are to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, take all their stuff. And whilst the letter goes across, the horse riders ride out. End of the passage, the king and Haman sit down to have a banquet. Yet another banquet, even as the city is thrown into confusion. See the enemy around God's people? It's an age-old story. They've not done anything wrong, the Jewish people. But don't think innocence will let you escape. Uh, The king doesn't know anything about them, but that doesn't stop him persecuting. Again, it's an easy mistake to fall into, isn't it? Are you constantly amazed how little governments understand the church and Christianity? As you read the press nowadays, it seems they almost no understanding of what true Christians believe, what they think. And so this battle, Saul and Agag, or go back further, Israel and the Amalekites, go back further, really to Genesis 3. This battle is a battle between the serpent, the devil, and the son of God and their respective peoples. All through scripture, time and again, 
The devil is keen to persecute, to kill, to destroy, to annihilate God's people. That is how the world works. As Christians, we need to not be naive to that. It doesn't matter how nice you are, how obedient you are. And some of our brothers and sisters in parts of the world know this firsthand. There is nothing you can do that will stop the empire persecuting because behind the empire stands, well, stands a spiritual enemy who is out to destroy and kill and annihilate. It is likely, I would imagine, I'm no prophet, but it's likely I would imagine that it's going to get harder and harder to live a wholehearted life for Christ in the UK over the coming years. Maybe there'll be a great revival. But at the moment, as things stand, those of you who are young, even by our standards, you grow up into it. It is likely that you will be persecuted in some way. So how do you stand up? Both the enemy within to those idols that grip our hearts and the enemies around. Well, it's eyes to the king again as we wrap up. See, the strange truth is that really we deserve to be like the Amalekites. We deserve to have God's judgment pronounced on us, don't we? God has the right to judge us. We have rebelled against him. We haven't bowed down when we ought to have done. God looks down from heaven, sees our rebellion, sees our refusal to bow. And sees the idol, idols that dwell in our hearts, sees a world full of little Hamans. And he loves them, even when they hate him. He loved us, even when we hated him. And so there's hope. There's hope even written into, the, into this passage. You see in verse 12, a tiny hint. The king's scribe was summoned on the 13th day of the first month. That probably passes us by, but it wouldn't pass a Jewish reader by. That is the eve of Passover. The decree that says, you will all be wiped out, goes out at Passover. The festival that celebrates the time when God passed over the Israelites, didn't punish them in judgment, but rescued them, destroyed their enemies in Egypt. A little ray of hope. And that's the ray of hope in the passage for us. We know that God gave his son rather than blot us out. Not just a lamb, but his own son, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And God said, Here he is. He handed him over to wicked men who would plunder his few goods. Little that the Lord Jesus had were taken from him as he went to crucifixion. Uh, They cast lots for them, stripped him, and then crucified him. The Lord Jesus himself took our sin on his shoulders and said, destroy, annihilate, kill me, that they might live, that they might be brought to rest. God sees that idolatry and he has paid for it. He considered it worth bringing rebels to rest. And that's why when we're thinking about ourselves, we're not meant to look inside and find all these qualities. I am a clever person, a beautiful person. We're not meant to build our identity on what we see in ourselves and how we evaluate ourselves, still less what other people think. We don't need these fragile egos. We look up and see a God who loves us. And his love is not based on something in us. It's not that he looked, saw that we were beautiful, clever, funny, intelligent, wise, holy, good. He loved us because he loved us. And so we're safe. We're loved. That is your identity, made by God and a son or daughter of God. And so he cares what the world thinks. And likewise, when... The TV is switched off and you're sent to your room to tidy. Likewise, when people don't appreciate as we should or we're not treated as we should, who cares really? 
all is well. We're safe in the Father's hands. And who cares when the enemy comes from outside to persecute us? If it means losing our career, that must be what this loving heavenly father deems best for me. If it means my friends turn their back on me and think of me as a bigot for my views on various things about morality, that must be what this loving heavenly father thinks best for me. It'll be painful, sure. But ultimately, he has passed over my sin. He has rescued me for eternal glory. And so short time suffering is nothing in comparison the enemy within with the enemy without both have been conquered by christ your image your identity is safe in him so don't look around but look up find your worth there and then live for him even in the days of the dark empire let's pray father in heaven we confess we are petty Haman's. how we love ourselves more than we should we think our identity our safety our Our happiness rests on all these little idols rather than finding it in you. We pray in your mercy you would strip our eyes away from ourselves and and, and have them look up to see your goodness, your grace, your generosity. Enable us, we pray, not to care what others think, uh, but to be uh, single-minded in our service to our King. Uh, Make us in that way like the Lord Jesus, we pray. For we ask in his name. Amen.